You know, there are some passages in the Bible that you just never get away from, aren't there? You know, I, I know some like that. Their passages, verses are always in the back of your mind and they come up over and over again and, and really they have an outsized influence on your Christian life, don't they? You know, for me, 1 Corinthians 5.21, Romans 12.1 and 2, Proverbs 3.5 and 6, 1 John 1, 1.9, and Romans 8.32. And that last one, Romans 8.32, that will be our focus this morning. Uh, we'll get back to Revelation soon. You know, I, I don't like to depart uh, from the middle of something, especially as we're, we're going through uh, the seven churches, but uh, there were a number of things that happened this week, uh, along with prayers for discernment that led me here to the book of Romans. And uh, this is a passage that I've uh, preached before, and I'm sure some of you have heard a sermon very similar to this before, and that's okay. It's good to be reminded of these things. And, uh, and truthfully, I can't take much credit for how we're approaching this verse because I'm drawing a lot on a sermon I heard uh, from Ligon Duncan who drew on uh, the Puritans where he heard it from, who drew on the theologians that came before them. And that's okay too. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really not concerned when I come up here on Sunday mornings about being original or being creative. You know, that's, that's not my goal and that's not what a pastor's called to. My goal, especially my goal this morning, is to see Christ formed in you. To see Christ formed in you. And if I've read something or hear something that I think is going to help to do that, then I want you to know about it. And so, you know, I, I read the same books and listen to the same things you do. I'm just privileged to be able to get to do it more. And, uh, and then I bring it here on Sunday mornings and throughout the week. So, this morning... Let's look together at Romans 8, 32. And, uh, and as you're turning there, I, I want to remind you that, you know, the gospel is, in fact, a very simple message. It is Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, he summarizes it in less than 30 words. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And even though it's a, it's a simple message, the truths that are in there, they could exhaust volumes if they were to be written out. You know, each phrase that comes to mind when we think of gospel, that's enough to captivate us forever. Are things like, God took on flesh. What does that mean that God took on flesh? He became sin. He knew no sin. Do you know anyone who not only never sins, but doesn't even know what sin is? He knew no sin. No connection with sin. Even words like atonement or propitiation or resurrection. Think of the attributes of God at work here. The wrath of God, the justice of God, or the righteousness of Christ. The Old Testament examples fulfilled at the cross. Deuteronomy 21-23, Cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. Or the, the vivid picture of the Passover lamb. All of these describe in some aspect the work of God in the Gospel and on the cross. One aspect of the cross, one that we don't think about often, and it really isn't an aspect, it's a person. And that person is God the Father. We know what Christ has done for us. But what has the Father done 
What, what has He given? And what did our redemption cost our Heavenly Father? That's Romans 8.32. So Romans 8, verse 32. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Now let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word and thank You for Your love. Thank You for Your kindness poured out on Your people. Lord, I pray that You would... Lord, help us to see what You have done. What You have done for us. I pray, God, that it would not be... Lord, it's so easy to hear these things and, and think of them as something that happened so long ago. But Lord, they're, they're real. It's, it's real and it's for us. Not for some other kind or group of people in times past. Not for some future fulfillment. It's for us and for all believers, Lord. Apart from Christ, there is no salvation. Apart from your giving, there is no redemption. And so I pray, Lord, that this morning we would turn our eyes to you, our God and our Father, with thankful hearts and appreciation for what you have done for us, for our redemption and our reconciliation. Help us to see things rightly and not to go astray or askew. It's in your name we pray. Lord, help me to preach and help us to hear. Amen. When we think of our redemption, and when we meditate on the cross, my concern is that very often our picture of the Father is, is not quite right. And, and not just off by a little bit, but not quite right. Sometimes it's totally wrong. Either he is a, an absentee kind of father, he's not there at all, or he is simply wielding the sword of judgment. And so let me ask you a question. What was the attitude of God the Father when his son was dying on the tree? And you say, well, Isaiah 53, uh, Isaiah 53.10, it was his will to crush him. He was crushing him. Uh, yes, that's true. But I didn't ask what he was doing. I asked, what was his attitude? What was his heart towards us and towards the Son? How is God the Father involved here? I mean, we know it was his will to crush him, but if that's all that we can say about the Father's acting in redemption, we haven't come even close to the reality presented in the Scriptures. You know, see, the, the, the work of the Father at Calvary is meant to comfort the saints. When you think of the Father's involvement at the cross, it should give you courage and it should give you comfort. You know, in the context of the book of Romans, the reason why this verse is where it is is because Paul is about to remind the believers in Rome that they will have to suffer. Right? Tribulation and famine and slander and sword. They're going to be led like sheep to be slaughtered. There are going to be endless accusations hurled against these believers. And before that happens, he tells them, Romans 8.32, uh, uh, to act as an anchor for these believers in Rome. 
It's going to give them a place to plant their feet so that when all of those things come crashing into them like a storm, they're secure and they're safe. That's why it's here. To plant our feet and make us safe and secure and anchored when trials come. And you're secure and you're safe because of the glorious truth contained in these words. And you say, well, how? In every persecution and in every trial and in everything that brings suffering or pain, just because of our, our, our human nature and our propensity to, to, to doubt and to wonder, when that happens, there will be the temptation to doubt and question the goodness of God. Pain and suffering make us ask the question, is God really good? Right? I know He is great, but is He good? Is He for us? Trials do this, don't they? Does God really love me when my son dies or my house gets burned down by an angry mob or I lose my job for His sake and now I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills? My marriage is drifting apart and my children hate me because of Christ. I mean, if you don't have a rock-solid foundation of confidence that's found only in the Gospel, these things will come, and they will come, and they will bowl you over. You know, and that might have been on the more extreme ends of things that would happen, but there are... Everyone in this room can probably think of some trial they are facing, have faced, or probably will face that they need a firm footing for. And this verse gives us that strong footing for faithfully weathering the storms that come. And, and it does this, it does this by pointing us to the relationship between the Father and the Son at the cross to prove and remove all doubt that God is for you, even in these most terrible circumstances. And the re way it does this is by reminding us that none of those circumstances can compare to what the Lord God, our Father, has already endured for your sake. You know, sometimes we're tempted to think that the only reason God loves us, and often more like tolerates us and less like loves us, but we think it's because love was wrested from His hands by the Son. And we think that. And apart from Christ... God the Father can not love us. You know, some of you, you hear this and you're thinking, yeah, that's the gospel. On the cross, Jesus won compassion from the Father for His people. And apart from that, God has no interest in the world except to judge. Right? Psalm 5.5, 5, God hates all who do wrong, and we all do wrong. Or Psalm 11.4, the Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. And we know that no one is righteous, not even one. And it leaves some people thinking like this. Some believers thinking like this. God hates workers of evil. I worked evil. God hated me. Now I'm saved because of Jesus. So Jesus must have convinced the Father to stop hating me. Listen, God loves and God hates. This is true. But that's not how he speaks about his people. He's not the begrudging forgiver. He loves his people. And I want us to, to work through this verse in four parts. First part, he gave his son. He loves the son he gave. Number three, he delivered him up. And he did it forth for us. He gave his son 
He loves His Son. He delivered Him up. And He did it for us. So it begins with the emphasis not on the Son's dying, but on the Father's giving. The emphasis is on the love of the Father displayed at the cross. He is the one who initiated it. And the words that express this are, He did not spare, but gave Him. God gave Him. And what does that mean? It means He did so willingly. He did so willingly. You know, sometimes we will give something up if what is threatened is precious to us, right? Like if a, if a robber comes and he sticks a gun in your back and says, your money or your life, right? You don't give him your, your, your money because you want to give him your money. You don't give him your money and you say, oh, I'm so glad I get to give this up. No, you, you really don't want to give him your money. If you could, you'd turn the tables and probably shoot the robber. But because you value your life, give him the cash. None of us would give up something precious without some kind of intense pressure to do so. Like gunpoint, right? Why would any of you allow your child to be taken by those who you know are going to mistreat them and torture them? Would you do that willingly? Right? I mean, if you're, if you're right there with them, would you let them go? Absolutely not. It would be over your dead body if it was going to happen. And if you weren't dead, you would spend the rest of your life hunting those monsters down, right? But the last thing that you would ever do is give over your son. You love your son. I mean, look, there are a lot of things you could maybe do begrudgingly, but giving up your own son is not one of them. That's exactly what God does. And He's not under any kind of compulsion either. Who could compel the Lord God Almighty? There's no one greater than God. There's no one stronger than Him that could come along and twist His arm. He's morally perfect. No one could ever blackmail Him or threaten Him in the slightest. And you think, well, what about the law of love? Well, no, that's just a reflection of who this God is. You know, the law comes from His own character. It's not above Him. How could there be a law above God that God has to yield to? That would mean there was an authority greater than God to put that law over Him. And there is no one greater than Him. There is no law over Him to which He must yield. All laws are not, not just subordinate to Him, but they flow from Him. Every law that exists has its origin in God. Now all of this to say that when God gives His Son, it was and could be nothing but 100% voluntary. He gives Him Willingly, just like everything else God does. No one twists His arm ever. And that means that this plan of redemption, this giving of God's own Son, it was born out of and motivated by God's love for humanity and His desire to redeem His people who were lost. It's planned and initiated by the Father out of His own love. And in fact, this is... Uh, this is where the emphasis in Scripture in redemption is almost always placed, on the love of God the Father. You know, one verse you, you all know, probably the first one you ever, ever memorized, and even if you don't know the Bible, you know this verse, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. It's very similar to 8.32. 
And who in this verse is doing the loving? God the Father is doing the loving. Who is doing the giving? God the Father is doing the giving. And what's the motivation behind it? The love of the Father. But that love is why you or I or anyone who trusts in Christ will not perish. Or Acts 2.23, in the very first proclamation of the gospel uh, that Peter makes after Pentecost, what does he say? He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the plan and foreknowledge of God. And again, it's the same language. God delivered him up and it was all according to plan. God knew what was happening because God planned what was happening. And what Peter is saying here is that it was God's idea. This is how God would save His people from their sins. Christ came to do it and He knew what was required, but it was according to the, the plan, the eternal plan of His Father. In the Old Testament, this is hinted at in the passages on the New Covenant. It's visualized in the sacrificial system and in the priesthood. Or maybe the clearest is Isaiah 53.10. It pleased the Lord to crush Him. It pleased the Father to crush the Son. Now, don't think that that means that He enjoyed it. That's not what it means. It means He was pleased to redeem His people and put away sin, their sin, by crushing His Son. It wasn't a begrudging giving. Or 1 John 4.10. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And you see that in the, in the covenant of redemption, don't you? God looking forward in time before time began and He sees this fallen people who He made and who He loves and looking to His Son, He tells them, Son, I'm sending you to get them. And son, there's only one way, and you know what that means. And the son says, Father, I do, and I shall. And so the father sends his son because he loves us. And so, so you have to, to see this. At the cross, God is not giving begrudgingly. Jesus is not coaxing the Father to love His people. God's love for His people is the reason why He's there. God gave. And he didn't give a, an ox or a goat. He gave a person. Not just anyone. He didn't give David, a man after his own heart. He didn't give Moses, a mediator of, of the law. He didn't give Daniel, about whom Scripture records no vice. He gave his son. It was costly for the father to redeem. I'm, I'm always surprised when I'm reading through Scripture and see the priesthood of the father. It's all over the place. You have Job interceding and offering sacrifices for his children. You have Noah doing the same after the flood. But, but there's one place it stands out, and you probably all know where it is. It's in Genesis 22. And in Genesis 22, we read the story of Abraham taking his son to the altar of sacrifice up on Mount Moriah. There's Isaac. He's carrying the wood to the place, the mountain where he will be sacrificed by his Father, I think God here is trying to show us something. He's trying to tell us something when He speaks those words to Abraham. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. And He asks him to offer that son 
as a sacrifice, as a burnt offering. And we, we feel what Abraham must have, must have been enduring there, right? He didn't jump up Johnny on the spot in the morning ready to go, eager to go. He probably never even slept the night before. He was, he was asked by the Father, by God, to do something painful. I mean, he loved his son Isaac. He didn't want to give him up. He's the son of the promise. He wasn't going to sacrifice him. How could he? And that's the dilemma that Abraham's facing. This is his son. And yet Abraham is a faint, a faint and a pitiful reflection of the loving heart of the Heavenly Father for his son. Now Abraham loves Isaac. He probably loves Isaac more than most of us love our sons. But it's not like the Father loves his Jesus. And this isn't meant to teach us just about the history of the patriarchs of Israel. This is a glimpse into God's plan where one day, thousands of years later, the whole thing will be reenacted on a cosmic scale. God gave His Son. And God loved the Son that He gave. That's number two. He loved the Son that He gave. You know, we all love our children, don't we? I think everybody in this room would say, I love my A lot of new parents here, you didn't even know how much love you could have for a child. All of that love is pathetic by comparison. Even the best love that a father has for a child, even the most pure and undiluted, it's still coming from one of us. And it's not much by comparison. I mean, how could it be? You know, the second most mind-boggling display of this kind of love in the Bible of a father and a son, and the reason, it, the reason it, it jars the mind is because of how unloving the son seems to be, not seems to be, is, it's 2 Samuel 18. And it's a bit of a surprise because in 2 Samuel 18, there's rebellion. There's a civil war in Israel, and it's tearing the country apart. But it isn't some other tribe jealous of David. And it's not uh, those other tribes across the, uh, across the Jordan River. It's a man from Judah who rises up against the king. And it's a man from Jerusalem who rises up against the king. And he's from the house of David leading the rebellion. And his name is Absalom, David's oldest living son. And when that rebellion is brought to an end, it's not primarily by the victory of David's brave soldiers, but by the death of Absalom, the son of the king. He's caught, we're told, by his hair in a tree. He's suspended between heaven and earth, and Joab finds him, and he takes three javelins and pierces him three times before discarding the body. And when Joab delivers the message to David the king, peace has been restored. It's not a time of rejoicing. When David hears that Absalom has been slain, he is filled with inconsolable grief over the loss of his son. You remember what he does. He tears his clothes, he pulls at his hair, and he cries, Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, were that it were I instead of you. And the victory that day becomes a day of mourning over the death of the son of the king. And listen, David is the one who planned it. And the soldiers are marching out. He sends them out and says, this is, this is the battle plan. This is what you will do. This is how you will be victorious. And Joab doesn't get it. Joab says, you, 
you don't stop this and go and speak to your men, then they're going to they're gonna rebel against you and it's going to be way worse than what Absalom did. And so David does go and he congratulates the men and, and welcomes them in. But get the picture here. The kingdom is united. Peace is restored. The people are reconciled to their true king. And the price? It's his own son, the crown prince, lying dead under a heap of rocks. At the cross... Our peace is purchased with the blood of Christ, the Son of God. And it is a day of great victory. What day was more victorious for us than the cross? Sin was defeated. The power of darkness over us was defeated. Death was defeated. We were redeemed. Victory. At the cost of God's one and only beloved Son. Do not forget that that is what the Father gave there. And even then, the grief is more than we could ever experience or imagine. I mean, if we lost a child, it would be a terrible thing. It would be an awful thing. But it also would have been a child who sinned against us and a child that we had sinned against. And the relationship, as strong as it was, it would have been corrupted by sin. And even though we would still love, and we would still grieve. And I want to take away from that. It's real. But as fallen people, we never love as we ought to love. It wasn't that way between our Father in heaven and our Lord. It was the most perfect love that was ever known. His love was, he loved his son like no father has ever loved their human son. In fact, all of the love that we have, right, why do, why do parents love their children in the first place? It's a reflection of being made in the image of God, a reflection of the love of the Heavenly Father for his son. In John chapter 1, he writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the word there, with, that word with, it can mean face to face. And that's the, the picture God is giving. The, the Father and the Son face to face. You know, some of you with children, one of your favorite things to do is just to pick up the child and look at them, right? And with children, it's universal. They love to play a game where, where you hide your face and then reveal the face called called peekaboo. And when the face is revealed, the child smiles and is filled with joy. There's something special, there's something intimate about being face to face, isn't there? That we all know and we can't quite describe. But that's the language used here to describe the relationship between God the Father and His Son for all of eternity. It's God's Son. It's the, the perfect, spotless one who he loves and has set his love upon. At the baptism, what does he say? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. At the transfiguration, this is my son. Listen to him. And even just weeks before the crucifixion, and his heart is heavy, Jesus' heart, and he's burdened, and he, he says, Father, glorify your name. And the Father speaks from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. But on the cross... All that love and all that glory is concealed. It's obscured. The, the relationship doesn't look that way, does it? I mean, what did the passersby say? 
If he's God's son, let him save him. If God loves him, let God save him. Even the Jews today, they teach that Jesus is a blasphemer and a rebel who rightly deserved to die. And we might be tempted to say that on the cross, God ceased to love His Son. Right? Sin is laid upon Him. And in the, the hideousness of it all, the heinousness of it all, well, the Father couldn't possibly love Him anymore, could He? Well, the Father did turn His face away. And the Father did dispense the fullness of His justice. But as for love, not only is the Father's love not receding, it is intensifying. Christ is exceeding Himself here in love. And of course, He had always been a glorious Son. But there in that moment, He is surpassing Himself. And that might be a dangerous thing to say regarding the immutability of God, but John 10.17 says just that. It says, for this reason, Jesus speaking, for this reason the Father loves me. So why does the Father love us? What is the pinnacle of the Father's love for the Son? Because I lay down my life. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life. Now that wasn't the only reason to be sure, but it was the apex, the high point, not only of God's love for man, but of God's love for Jesus, His Son. Never was there a time when the Father was more pleased with Christ than on the cross. It's like when you see your, your own child and they're doing exactly what you asked them to do. They're even going above and beyond, and you're, you're proud of them. And in that moment, your heart is bursting with affection. Now, you may not love them more, but every ounce of love and enjoyment and satisfaction that you could have, it's all being drawn up in full force. Well, that's what's happening here. Love is at its most complete and fullest measure. And yet, here at the height of the Son's obedience... At the height of the Father's affection, the sky grows dark. And that love is hidden behind sin and justice and judgment. But don't, don't think it went anywhere. And don't think for a second that it was easier for the Father to crush this beloved Son than for the Son to endure it. I mean, how could He strike the One who existed in eternity past in unbroken fellowship? How could He strike the one who was always pleasing to Him? But the light of God's countenance went out. And not only does it go out, it is replaced with all of His wrath and His fury against sin. He was delivered up. Point three, He was delivered up. He did not spare, but gave Him up. And this is used in Scripture to mean handed over for destruction or handed over to be judged or being handed over to your enemies. And in the Bible, when someone is handed over or delivered over, it's usually because they've broken the law of God and deserve to die. And when God is the one doing the handing over, it's even more dreadful. For example, in Romans 1, people are handed over to the corrupting power of sin that will accumulate in their judgment. They are handed over to sin and to death. And that phrase, delivered up, it, it means to tell us that the Lord's suffering was without measure 
or limit. You know, you wonder sometimes, how much did he suffer? And I'm not talking about the crown of thorns and the nails or the whip or the wood. I'm talking about the cup of God's wrath against sin poured out on him. That, that invisible curse of God. It didn't have any boundaries. There was no upper limit. It, it can't be quantified. It can't be. He is the infinite God. He was the infinitely worthy one. And however much He endured, I, I, don't, I don't know what it was. I don't know how to quantify it, but to say that it was the equivalent of the, all of the sin and death and hell deserved by everyone in this room who believes, everyone in this city who believes, everyone in this country and world who believes, and anyone who will ever believe in times past or times to come. For every person who walks the streets of glory, Christ bore their hell. And not just a little bit. You know, he, he didn't stick his foot in and get his toes wet, and that was it. All of it. For all of us. If that wasn't enough for him to endure that, Jesus was the least prepared of all beings to be cursed and forsaken by God. So why do I say that? Well, have you ever found yourself in a, in a situation, maybe you, maybe you go out with a person, you don't really know them that well, you want to get to know them better, but when you get there, things are not what you expected. And you know, something awful is happening. They're saying things or watching things or doing things or they're, they're behaving in a way that, that God despises. If you hadn't known, you would have never went and, and, and literally it makes you sick to your stomach. You know, they're just going along in it. You're physically nauseous. Has that ever happened to you? It does happen. Sin makes us uncomfortable. Guilt and shame make us uncomfortable. How many of you, when you felt guilty or shamed about something, it made you physically sick to your stomach? Well, guess what? We are sinners. But Jesus wasn't. Jesus was sinless. He never felt shame or guilt ever, ever. You know, we can't even begin to comprehend what it means that Jesus bore just one sin or one person's sin, but all of His people's sins. The shame for our own sin is more than often we can bear. How much greater the shame and the guilt and the weight of the sin felt by the sinless one. If it's almost too much for us, our own sin, how much more the one who has never sinned and all of our sins. And even then, even then it was the Father doing it. He, the Father, made Him who knew no sin, the Son, to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. He made Him. God did it. He is the one who is imputing our sin and taking our guilt off of us and laying it on His Son. And afterwards, He is the one who is administrating the penalty. God is the one who kills His Son. God is the one who uh, sends His only Son up the hill on the wood like Abraham, and He raises the knife over His head with His Son restrained to the fatal wood. But that time with Abraham, what happened? There was a ram caught by the horns. 
This time the knife came down. There was no voice. There was no substitute. There was no one to take the place of His beloved Son. There is only the blood and death and fury of sacrifice. I mean, I just, can you imagine? Just consider Christ in that moment. There is no promise of deliverance on the horizon. You ever thought about that? That on the, on the cross He is totally given over? Adam and Eve plunged the entire world into darkness and death because of their sin. And they suffered, but they had a promise. God would send one to crush the serpent's head and restore what was lost and ruined by the fall. Abraham had a promise God is going to send a Messiah. Jacob had a promise. Moses had a promise. I'm gonna, one day I'm going to send someone, a prophet like you, and everybody is going to know me. David. God tells David, I have put away your guilt. And he did for 750 years. And then he took that guilt out again and laid it on Christ. But this time, there was no promised deliverance because the promised one had come. You know, when Abraham said, Jehovah Jireh, God will provide. Christ is the ram caught by his horns in the thicket of thorns. He is the, the promised one. He is the one who will bear the weight of Adam's sin and Abraham's and Noah's and so many others. And all of the wrath that they store up stored up for themselves over all of the years, all of it fell on him and he had no promise of deliverance. You say, well, what about the resurrection? One thing the Bible teaches is that Christ was not only forsaken by his father, but the reason why he was forsaken was because he was cursed and he is utterly forsaken and cursed. And we don't have time to plunge into the depths of what it means to be cursed. But one thing contained in those curses, you can go back and you can read them in Deuteronomy specifically, one thing contained in those curses is that all the hope that God promised to His people would be stripped away. Part of the curse is being left without hope. And even though the resurrection was coming, in that moment on the cross, Christ was stripped of all comfort and all assurance of victory. The, the depths of despair could not go deeper into which only this God-man could descend. He went to a place where love, light, joy, hope, even assurance of ultimate victory, all of it was denied Him and He was left in total darkness. His sacrifice is to the uttermost and He is forsaken by God for us. You know what this means? Lincoln Duncan, in his, in his sermon on this verse, he says this. He says, It means, Christian, that on your blackest night... And in your most sorrowful tribulation, when your soul is overwhelmed to the point of breaking and it feels as though the sky above you is bronze and the Lord has closed His ears to you, you will never be forsaken by God because somebody else was forsaken in your place. And you will never be standing where Jesus in that moment stood because He didn't stand there with you. He stood there for you. He stood there in your place so that you can never say, if you are a Christian, you can never say you have been utterly forsaken. You can never say, God has abandoned me. It isn't true because somebody else was abandoned for you. 
It's a sobering thing to realize that one day when you walk the streets of glory by the grace of God, that you may walk from the, the span of the cosmos from time into eternity and you can meet every being in heaven and you will meet every person who knows you know, in that walk. You will never meet a single person who knows or who has experienced what it means to be utterly forsaken by God except one. The one seated on the throne. And He endured the curse so that you will never be able to repeat those words. Not never will have to. Never be able. Never going to happen. And repeat those words, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? If you are in Christ, He will never leave you nor forsake you. And that's the fourth point. God handed him over for us. Jesus was the last person in the universe that should have been hanging on that tree. You know, he didn't deserve to be there. You know, the cross is unjust, isn't it? It's the most unjust thing that's ever happened. I mean, it's worse than anything that's ever happened to anybody in here. It's worse than anything that's ever happened to anybody in the whole world combined. And it's certainly worse than anything that's ever happened to any of us. And you see there at the cross, it's a, it's a horrid thing, isn't it? It's, it's one thing for a criminal to get what they deserve. That's one thing. It's, something, uh, it's, it's one thing for justice to be rightly served. That's a good thing, isn't it? It's righteous. It's just when justice is served. We look forward to the day when justice will be uh, doled out perfectly. But just as right and righteous as that is, it is equally unrighteous and evil when the innocent are executed and when justice is denied. And yet, isn't that what is happening at Calvary? It looks unjust, doesn't it? Not only unjust, Proverbs 17.15, it says, Those who acquit the guilty and condemn the righteous, both alike are an abomination before God. There is no stronger word for injustice and perversion and sin than abomination. And yet, that is what God says is happening here. The cross is an abomination. The artillery of God and all of His strength against sin and all of His justice, all of it is pointing at the one place it should never point. And it's striking out at the one place it has no right to strike. I mean, Jesus and cross don't make sense. If it was you, or if it was I, it would make sense. If there were any other human being who's ever lived, it would make sense. It does not make sense for the innocent, blameless Son of God to be nailed to the tree under the wrath of Almighty God against every sin from Adam until the second coming. But it's not unjust. Because even though Jesus was innocent, all of His innocence and all of His righteousness was taken away from him like a scarlet robe. All of it. All of it. And it was given to his people in exchange for their guilt and their unrighteousness. And he didn't die for his own sin. He died for yours. And now God can justly forgive you and not become an abomination because all of your sins have been paid according to the plan of God and were laid on Jesus Christ. And God can be just 
and the justifier of those who put their faith in Him. You know, we hear this so often that it really doesn't move us at all. It doesn't move us that the penalty for a broken covenant was aimed at the one place the covenant had never been broken. It doesn't stir us when we hear that the Lord of glory became the, the Lord of our shame. You know, in the, in, 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 the, in the garden, after the fall, the symbol of the curse were thorns grew up, weren't they? And the, at the cross, Jesus is crowned with the symbol of the curse. He became the king of the curse there. And do we realize how senseless all of this actually is? The cross is the most preposterous thing that could ever be imagined by the minds of men. This is outrageous. If it was not for God, it would be the most insane and evil thing ever devised by anybody. And you say, yeah, well, what do you mean? Think about it. Just imagine David. David, he's reading the law and he sees... Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And he's done both of those things. And he begins to come under conviction. You know, he's broken the law. He knows what he deserves. And so he goes to God and he says to him, after his sin with Bathsheba, after the murdering of Uriah, and he goes before him and he says, God, I, I know, Lord, I have sinned. And Lord, I know your law that those who do such things deserve to die. But God, it's okay. I have an idea. You know that son of yours? That son who you love? You could forgive me if you were to take him and kill him in my place. Lord, if you take that son of yours that you love and you treat him like the adulterer and the murderer, you do that, God, and your justice will be satisfied and you can let me go and I can be forgiven. Somebody sins against you and comes up to you and says, it's okay, I have an idea. That son of yours, we'll just kill him instead of me. We'll put him in prison and let me go free. Do you see how preposterous that is? Or Adam in the garden? Oh God, I know you've been so good to me and to my wife who you gave me. You've given us life. You put us in a perfect world. Access to you, these bodies, everything we have comes from you. And I know that you said that those who eat from the tree will die, but that devil was just so convincing. And we listened to that snake instead of you. And, and I know what you said. On the day of you eat of it, you will surely die. But what about that son you love so much who has been with you since before time began? Would you offer him up instead of us? Would you kill him as the satanic idolater and let us live? If it wasn't from God, it would be wicked. Now, I imagine every angel in heaven, when they caught wind of this plan, they were, they were crying out, God, you've gone too far. Yes, God, love them and save them, but not like this. This is too much. But it's not from the angels. And it's not man's idea. It was from God. And it was for us. His Son came at His request, and He crushed Him on that tree under His wrath against the sin of another. Your sin. And that is how God chose to display His love for us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if He is willing to endure that for you, 
to deliver you from being delivered up, how will He not graciously give you all things? Two points of application as we close. One, I want to be clear about this. There is only one way of salvation, and that is through Jesus Christ. And every other way, and every other religion, not only can it not save, but it is an insult to the grace and love of God. If this teaches us anything, it teaches us that. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, do you know that rejecting Christ is rejecting this great sacrifice? Jesus says in Matthew, it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for the people of Capernaum. Why? Because Jesus was there and He told them this and they rejected it. If you think you'll be made right with God some other way apart from the cross of Christ and the Gospel, I can't think of anything that would be more offensive to God the Father than that. Because if you think there is another way, it's the same as telling God that His sacrifice, His enduring all of this, wasn't necessary for you. It's looking at God and saying, I know that was a lot, and I'm, you know, I'm glad you went through that for some people, but you really didn't need to do it for me. Thank you, but I made my own way. I found another way. When His Son is in the garden, begging and pleading for the Father to find another way, don't you think if there was one, He would have found it? Don't you think if there was any other way besides striking down the son of his greatest affection and love, the father would have found one? Don't you think he would have answered this prayer? And yet, some have the nerve to say, you may not have been able to find another way, but I have. You may have said the only way is by crushing your son, but I had better ideas than that. Listen, for your own sake, don't provoke the Lord so brazenly. There is no other way. There is one way. And it is only through the crucified Son of God who is the exclusive Savior of the world. But the good news is there is one way. And if you feel shame and guilt this morning, the reason is because you've done shameful things and are guilty. And the only way to have that guilt, the only way to have that guilt and shame removed is by being forgiven by God. Well, you have to understand, what happened to Him it should have happened to each and every one of us. It should have. But that's why He was sent. Not to make you a better person, not to give you purpose, not to be your friend, but to redeem you from the curse of the law and take your guilt and die in your place so that when you come to the Father, He can look at you and say, My beloved daughter, my beloved son, enter into the joy of your Master. This is why He came. Spurgeon says on this passage, he says, Certainly it would be wrong to say that God loves us more than Christ. But He does not love us any less. And if you're already a Christian, second application, if the Father subjected his, Himself to this kind of pain and loss to redeem you, how will He not in Christ give you all things that are necessary for you to overcome and endure to the end? Your greatest enemy 
was defeated at the greatest price, what lesser thing do you think God will not steer you through? You ever wonder if God will help you in the time of need, in the time of testing? How can He not? If God was willing to go so far as to give His own Son, what good thing could He possibly withhold from you? If He has given that of which nothing greater can be conceived, will He not liberally bestow what is necessary for all of your needs in this life? Will He invite you into His home and then starve you? Will He save you at such a cost and then abandon what He has bought? Even if things in your life become terrible, you can still know that God will not lose you and has not ceased to love you or forsaken you. He will freely give you all things in Christ and He will give you the grace to endure whatever trial He has brought you to. How could we possibly think that God would ever deny us what we need when He has already given us His Son. If He's willing to go this far in reconciling His people, will He not keep us to the end and graciously give us all things? He will. And you can be sure as a believer, whether things are going well or poor, whether you have much or little, if you are in Christ, if God is your Father, no good thing does He withhold from you? Let's pray. Lord, thank You for sending Your Son. You gave Him up for us all. Lord, You have redeemed us from the futile life inherited from our forefathers, not with things like precious stones and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb spotless and without blemish. Lord, help us to live worthy of our calling. Lord, help us not to doubt Your love for us. Help us not to think of Calvary as a small thing or a first step in Christianity. Lord, this, this is the focal point. Paul made it his ambition to preach Christ and Him crucified and to know nothing but. And Lord, I pray that all of us, wherever one eye is focused, the other is always on the cross. Remembering, Lord, what You had done there for us. Thank You for sending Your Son. Thank You for loving us as You have. Help us, Lord, to love You and to live for You and to persevere for Your namesake. Help us, Father, to trust You that You will graciously give us all things in Christ. In Christ. Amen.